0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we celebrate the 225th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. Happy 225th anniversary, Bill of Rights. You were ratified on December 15, 1791 and we're so thrilled to wish you a very happy birthday. The Constitution that came out of the Convention of 1787 did not include a Bill of Rights, uh, despite the objection of anti-federalist delegates, including George Mason and Elbridge Gerry. I've learned to pronounce that Gerry rather than Jerry, and you too can pronounce it gerrymandering rather than gerrymandering if you want to annoy your friends by being pedantic. But their point was that these great anti-federalists Uh, who you can see at the National Constitution Center in our beautiful Signers Hall, standing at the back of the room because they refused to sign the Constitution, wanted to protect the fundamental rights of the people from a newly empowered president and Congress. Uh, But during the ratification debates, opponent to the Constitution fought hard for amendments specifying those rights. They cut and pasted them from the existing state constitutions. uh, And despite his initial resistance to the idea, James Madison changed his mind, and eventually introduced a Bill of Rights in Congress. 10 of those amendments were ratified on December 15th, 1791, 225 years ago. Joining me to discuss the history and legacy of the Bill of Rights on its 225th anniversary are two of America's leading historians on the American founding and the Bill of Rights, and both good friends of the National Constitution Center. Carol Birkin is Presidential Professor in American Colonial and Revolutionary History and Women's History at Brook College. She's the author of several wonderful books, including The Bill of Rights, The Fight to Secure Americans' Liberties, which she discussed at the Constitution Center in May 2015. You can check out that program on our website or on live at America's Town Hall. And David O. Stewart is a historian, author, and constitutional lawyer. He, too, is the author of several superb books about the Constitution and Bill of Rights, including Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. David was also here at the Constitution Center this past October for a great program on George Mason and the Bill of Rights, um, as well as uh, being here last year for some superb programs involving his book. And you can find those programs on our website and podcast. Carol, David, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here.
1: It's a great pleasure.
0: Let us jump right in and start with the obvious question, Carol. Why? Was a Bill of Rights not included in the original Constitution? What was Madison's objection to it, and why did he change his mind?
2: Part of the reason is extremely mundane. Everybody wanted to go home. (laughs) They had been in uh, humid uh, Philadelphia all summer. They had been in less than uh, luxury hotel quarters, and they were ready to be done. Uh, When George Mason raised the question, I always picture tons of groans spreading through the assembled group. Uh, He insisted that it would not take long at all to do this, and these men knew that nothing was done quickly at the convention, and they knew there would be endless arguments over what to include and how to say it. And so there was a tremendous just human resistance to adding anything. But in addition to that, as Roger Sherman pointed out, they didn't need to cite the rights the American people had because, as Sherman said, this Constitution doesn't give the federal government any authority or power to abridge those rights uh, w- this is not something that the government is involved in, and so why should we guarantee something that we can't abuse? And everybody breathed a sigh of relief, (laughs) and they went home.
0: Superb. So David Carroll has identified two reasons there was originally no Bill of Rights. One, they were getting tired, and two, there was no need for a Bill of Rights, many of the drafters believed because the Constitution had no power to abridge Rights of speech, for example, uh, there was a third reason Madison mentioned as well that it might be dangerous to have a bill of rights because people might assume if a right wasn't written down, it it wasn't protected. Tell, tell us about that and other other reasons that Madison didn't want a bill of rights initially.
1: Well, that was uh, a reason they articulated, and it's it's a pretty lawyerly reason and one that doesn't have that much uh, emphasis, that much persuasive power at this point. Uh, there are other reasons, though. It, it, they were not in Philadelphia to protect people's rights. Um, it wasn't their mindset. They were there to create a government. And that had been their focus all, all all summer. And Mason brings up the Bill of Rights in the last week of the convention. So it's very much an afterthought. And I think they thought he was stalling um, and that he was just trying to play for time so the Constitution wouldn't happen. And I would have the same suspicion myself. Uh, Also, it's important to remember that about half the state constitutions didn't have any particular protections for rights at the time. About half did. So it wasn't a universal expectation. Um, I think uh, it was a defensible position, although it turned out to be a terribly bad political blunder. Um, When the Constitution was initially circulated, uh, there was a lot of criticism over the absence of uh, specific protections for rights.
0: Wonderful. You mentioned that uh, many of the states did not have bills of rights. Others did. Uh, Listeners can check out which did and which didn't, can compare the text of those state constitutions to that of the final Bill of Rights at the thrilling Uh, web platform, uh, constitutionalrights.constitutioncenter.org, or on the great interactive Constitution app. It is so cool. I'm doing it now to click on any right in the original Bill of Rights, like the Second Amendment, for example, Uh, look at its antecedents in the revolutionary era, see that two states, Pennsylvania and Vermont, had versions of the right to bear arms that clearly protected an individual rights, and the remaining 11 states uh, protected it more as a Collective rights, so you can you can read uh, the text and decide for yourself. Carol, um, let's really dig into the question of why Madison changed his mind. And David signaled one reason, which is that there was a outcry in the state ratifying conventions. You mention another in your wonderful uh, book, um, "The Bill of Rights: The Fight to Secure America's Liberties." You say that Madison came to value a Bill of Rights for its ability to shape the behavior of the community. If the contents were protected as fundamental maxims of free government, they might become incorporated with the national sentiment and counteract the impulses of interest and passion. Tell us more about how Madison thought that a Bill of Rights would itself contribute to the shaping of our nation's political culture and of public reason itself.
2: He was very, uh, Madison's a very complex person. He he originally was one of the first to realize they had made a real tactical error, a strategic error in not including a Bill of Rights, because the people who opposed the Constitution jumped on that very emotional uh, 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 argument. Oh, clearly this is going to be a tyrannical government because it doesn't have a Bill of Rights. And this appealed to the general population's uh, fear about a new central government. They had just fought a war against a central government uh, that had been oppressive, and so they used this as an emotional appeal. And Madison realized that politically, that was that was an error on their part. But he also, as time went by, he he also, by the way, had promised to uh, uh, introduce the Bill of Rights when he ran for the Congress in Virginia, and so he felt some obligation to do that, and I think probably he thought his political career locally depended on it. But I think what's really interesting about him is he was not worried about tyranny on the part of the government. He honestly believed the checks and balances and the separation of powers would protect against that. He was worried about the tyranny of the majority against minorities. I don't think he thought of minorities the way we would today, but he meant, in large part, religious sects that were minorities, people who had views different from their neighbors. And he thought he decided that a Bill of Rights could serve as a, a, a it could help people internalize the protection of the minority uh, from the passions of the majority. Uh, he didn't use the word internalize, but we would use that term. That is, he he thought that if if Americans would accept this statement about the rights of all citizens that it would act as a brake on the majority's impulse to impose their will on on uh, people who disagreed with them and in fact in modern america that's That's exactly what it's become. It is our credo. It is what our country stands for. And that, that was what Madison had in mind and why it became so important to him.
0: Very interesting. David, um, what is your thought about whether Madison's hopes have been fulfilled or his fears have been vindicated? It is true, as Carol says, that today people will sometimes say, oh, you can't uh, ban flag burning because— the Constitution forbids it. But Madison, at the end of his life, was really concerned about how to cultivate public reason. He was interested in new technologies of communication across a broad country that would connect thoughtful elements of the population and lead them to pursue the public interest. Tell us exactly about w- w- what he was concerned about, how the adoption of a Bill of Rights fit into that, and whether his fears or, or his hopes have been, have been vindicated in modern America.
1: Well, I think Carol's been very... Uh, insightful in describing that Madison really didn't see the Bill of Rights as restraining the government particularly. Uh, He referred to it as a mere parchment barrier. Uh, He fully expected that in a time of crisis, uh, the government would ignore any constraints like that and would go ahead and restrict people's rights Um, if it was done in uh, in the cause of what the government considered a greater good, and we have seen that repeatedly. Uh, Just look at the habeas corpus in the Civil War, Japanese internment in World War II, or uh, some of the things we're going through today in our anti-terrorism fights. So that is exactly what Madison expected. He did have this more subtle sense and expectation that it could be, in essence, a teaching experience, that it could mold the political character and culture of the country. So these rights became something Americans expected of their government and expected to be respected by each other. Um, And I think that has worked. Uh, You know, it took more than 100 years before the Supreme Court even enforced one of the uh, rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights in, in a court case. It took a long time for people to internalize this, as, as Carol put it. So I think that long game that Madison was playing has proved out. You know, we come up short in protecting people's rights pretty much every generation. Um, it, it It's always a tension between the government and the individual, uh, and it's something we have to struggle with, and we do. Uh, and I think this was uh, a wonderful uh, attempt to try to frame that and to to push it in favor of the individual.
0: Great. Uh, Carol, one more beat on this fascinating question. You said that Madison feared the tyranny of the majority more than he feared government uh, tyranny, the majority defined differently than we define it today. But he also feared the tyranny of the minority, which he defined as any faction uh, with interests averse to that of the majority. Can you describe more precisely, help us understand what, what was the fear of the majority and what was the fear of the minority that, that moved Madison? I,
2: I think this is really often hard for students uh, that I taught or for many Americans to realize the men who wrote the Constitution thought that factions or political parties were an enormous danger to a republic, that it was with the rise of uh, kind of um, uh, collective, uh, a group who shared the same desires or the sh- same goals, who in- involved themselves in politics and tried to shape uh, what the government policy was going to be. That that factions, which we would call parties today, were extremely dangerous. And uh, as As I'm sure most people realize, Madison thought that the huge size of America at the the time would mitigate against this because people would be so spread out that it would be hard for these coalitions among interest groups uh, to form. He turned out to be not only wrong about that, but he turned out to be one of the organizers of of a, a political party rather quickly after the, the, the first uh, administration of wa- Washington and the first federal Congress came into being. So political parties, which we take as an absolute given today and can't imagine our world without out them, uh, were... The concern, and they were thought of as a kind of minority—that is, a special, a special interest group—and uh, and that idea really quickly disappeared from the political scene in the sense that people began to organize political parties almost immediately. The the concern about the majority, on the other hand, was was really we think of it in terms of. Uh, uh, gays and lesbians, or transgendered people, or or African Americans, but he was thinking in terms. In his day, the minority were the Baptists. <laughs> the, they were a, a sect in in his state of Virginia. Uh, the Moravians, the even the Quakers, uh, that or people who had. Um, uh, 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 social and, and cultural views that were really very different from from their neighbors, and this concern was very much a federalist concern that the people could be led astray by demagogues by, by uh, charismatic men who had didn't have the interests of the larger uh, republic uh, in in their mind, that had a desire for power, uh, that they could lead the majority of people in a state or in a in a, in a community to turn on uh, more vulnerable citizens, and so this is what I think primarily. Uh, it, that I think that's what the Bill of Rights was intended to educate people about. It It was a kind of civic uh, education um, mechanism, whereas the fight against political parties and the the agreed-upon idea that factions were a bad idea, that was shared by virtually uh, everybody in politics until Hamilton's Uh, economic program, fiscal and economic policies came out and political parties began to emerge almost immediately after that.
0: Fascinating. David, let's continue with this question of Madison's fear of demagogues who didn't have the interests of the people and could lead them astray to oppress vulnerable groups. Uh, With the rise of social media technology, the decline of the Mediating institutions that Madison took for granted, like like the Electoral College, uh, exercising independent judgment. Uh, what would Madison thought about the state of American constitutional democracy today?
1: <laughs> oh my, <laughs> a small uh, question, <laughs> <but> <laughs> and one
0: that we're we're going to be exploring this question in a sustained way at the National Constitution Center over the years ahead. But I would love your preliminary thoughts.
1: Well, uh, I I I think. Of course, Madison didn't tweet, um, <laughs> and he uh, was incapable of expressing himself in 140 characters or less anyway, uh, but I do think uh, he would be pretty close to appalled um, <laughs> by uh, our current political culture, and I really mean the culture that we seem to have grown in the last year, uh, the level of personal vituperation, um, the very superficial uh, discussion of public issues. Um, You know, it has not always been uh, a platonic dialogue in our political campaigns. Um, We have had lots of campaigns that went off on Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, or, you know, he kept us out of war, or just, you know, sloganeering. So I don't mean to... Exalt a past that never existed, but I do think we have seen a mean spiritedness which he would have found desperately contrary to what he thought um, the Constitution and the constitutional process was designed to establish, and certainly in the Bill of Rights. Um, And there is, you know, this you know, freedom with which groups are vilified um, would have disturbed him greatly. Uh, Carroll rightly points out that he was very solicitous of the religious minorities, which were the uh, most uh, visible ones to him politically. Obviously, slaves were not political actors in his his mindset, so he just didn't think of them um, in in that regard. And he was terribly concerned about them and would be terribly concerned today about the minorities that we worry about and uh, you know we we've taken a a hard turn uh, in our public conversation and I think he would find that very disturbing
0: carol what are some of the changes that would have distressed madison obviously public discourse was quite uh, vigorous and vituperative in his day as the election of 1800 Shows, but but uh, David's point to a, to a couple changes like tweeting and the rise of social media. C- can you point to other technological and institutional changes that Madison couldn't have anticipated and, and yeah, I, I
2: did want to say that it,
0: <laughs>
2: the the newspapers of the day in Philadelphia and New York and Boston slandered and libeled at will the men who were in office. It, I mean, if you read the Aurora or you read uh, uh, Peter Porcupine uh, uh, Cobbett's uh, newspaper, uh, they, without any regard for truth, they were definitely uh, post-factual themselves. And their vicious, vicious attack, ad hominem attacks on not just on John Adams, poor thing, who was just endlessly attacked, but even on Washington, there were... There was certainly not a high-minded press in in Madison's day. But the difference was that the men who held office were assumed, and in many cases it was true, were assumed to really be statesmen. That is, they were assumed not to be in politics so that they could, uh, when they retired, go work for a company that they had had the authority to regulate uh, just the year before. The, they were not professional politicians. They, they saw this, you could argue, that they were elitist and that they thought they were the only people who had the right to run the government. And and certainly in a hierarchical world, which is what the 18th century was, that that was a given. But they also saw themselves as as patriots, that is, as people who were interested in 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 sustaining the republic, in doing good for the republic. And it was what I think Madison would be worried about, because he was worried about it in his own Virginia. One of the reasons he was such a supporter of a federal government was, he said, in Virginia, in his own home state, people in office were so corrupt and so self-serving that you needed a government to, to get them under control. So I think what would concern him are the kinds of changes that happened in the 19th century with the rise of professional politicians and with this incredible appeal to the the worst instincts, I think, of, of the voting population. And that has been magnified beyond belief in our own time. And I think it is that he would be more than anything, I think, appalled by the pursuit of one's own special interest, personal interest, one's own wealth, one's own power in the people who serve in the government. He would see the, the end of statesmen. The men who wrote the Constitution believed that you filtered the emotionality, the passions of the people, through men who were, and their word was disinterested, not uninterested, but disinterested, men who would make decisions based on what they independently thought was best for the nation. We don't see a lot of that going on today, and I think that that would bring him to tears.
0: Thank you for that, David. One more beat on that because the question is so interesting. Madison said, "If men were angels, no government would be necessary." He wasn't just relying on good luck to assure the election of disinterested public servants rather than demagogues, but he created a bunch of institutions. What were those institutions, and and why did they fail to perform in the way that Madison hoped?
1: Well, well, he did place tremendous. Uh, confidence and hopes on the structure of the constitutional arrangements. And that included a very mixed series of methods of choosing the leaders. So the Senate until 1913 and was chosen by state legislatures. Uh, Now Madison actually pretty much detested the state legislatures, but that's a separate interest group being represented. Members of the House of Representatives are chosen directly by the people, and then the president would be chosen by this almost Rube Goldberg-esque series of uh, filters where the electoral college would make the first cut, and it might well end up in the House of Representatives. Uh, That was actually expected by many of the delegates that most uh, choices for president would be made ultimately in the House. That was the notion, and I think it was simply impractical at one level and just didn't foresee the growth of democratic spirit. Uh, You know, we have to remember that in their time, a very small percentage of the population actually could vote. We had property qualifications in most states. Uh, Certainly women didn't vote, enslaved people didn't vote. And so you had, I don't know, 5% of the population in many states were eligible to vote. When that changes, all of these elaborate mechanisms start looking very much like they do not serve the ideal of democracy. And in the Declaration and in the Constitution and in our rhetoric, we embrace it. We created a republic, but we talk about democracy. So these mechanisms begin to feel antiquated and poor fits and even counter to what our civic religion is. So that's why we have a constitutional amendment that created direct election of senators. And that's why I think you see today, as you have seen in years past, a considerable disquiet over the role of the Electoral College and the absence of direct election of the president. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm not inclined to be fault-finding about this. They were men of the, of 1787. They created a government for the world they lived in. Um, but it's been 220-some years, and the world has changed a lot. And some of these structures uh, we've been able to amend, and we've been able to revise to fit our expectations, and some we haven't. And that, you know, is, is a job that remains before us. It's quite Surprising to me, frankly, when you look at the last 40 years, we've had no real significant constitutional amendment. There's one that became law that had actually been one of the original 12 that Madison proposed in uh, 1789, which with respect to congressional pay, it could be the least significant amendment of all of them. Um, And otherwise, we've not been able to have any constitutional amendments. And I think it's something that required—amending uh, the Constitution requires a national consensus that we are having trouble uh, summoning, uh, which is another symptom, frankly, of dysfunctionality in the, our political life, and another one we need to, need to be thinking about.
0: Uh, we certainly do and will uh, continue to, and I want to return to this at the end. But first, Let us return to the Bill of Rights Uh, in the spirit of its 225th birthday. um, There were several proposals uh, of amendment that were made but did not get proposed. And you can find them on the interactive Constitution at constitutionalrights.constitutioncenter.org. I'm clicking on them now. Uh, They include um, a proposal one, which sounds a lot like the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence and describes sort of natural rights theory. Um, Proposal 2, which says um, that uh, there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. That was originally proposed as the original uh, First Amendment. You can see it at the National Constitution Center on one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights, but that one wasn't adopted. Next, you have Proposal 3, which says that the Senate can't raise its salary without an intervening election. That became the 27th Amendment when it was ratified in the 1990s. Uh, And Proposal 14, which Madison considered the most important in the bunch, and this is the one that I Mm want to ask you about, Carol, it says no state shall violate the equal rights of conscience or the freedom of the press or the trial by jury in criminal cases that would have forbade the states uh, from violating these fundamental rights, whereas the original Bill of Rights generally applied only to the federal government. It took the 14th Amendment and the bloodiest war in American history, the Civil War, to apply these fundamental rights against the states. Carol, why did Madison consider this the most important amendment, and why didn't it pass?
2: Well, generally speaking, the response to Madison's proposal for a Bill of Rights by the Federalists who controlled Congress and the presidency, and except perhaps for Jefferson, the cabinet, the general response was a big yawn. We don't need this. Why are you bothering us with this? It's trivial. Uh, we've got to do important things. We've got to organize the judiciary. We've got to set the tonnage rates. We've got to set the tariffs. We have to decide where the permanent capital will be. In fact, if you look at the congressional debates, more time was spent on where the capital should be than on the Bill of Rights. They, they thought that it... it, it, it it was pablum, that is, because they said it's just going to be a paper barrier. It has no enforcement. Uh, uh, you haven't built in any serious enforcement mechanisms, and so uh, it's just a waste of time. The, the Federalists finally, the light bulb appeared over the head in the House, and they realized that it would serve to really strike a serious blow to the opponents of the Constitution, and there still were really a lot of them around, Patrick Henry at the time and George Mason. Uh, I mean, people still wanted to have a second convention and fundamentally eviscerate the powers that the that the federal government had, the power to tax, the power to regulate commerce. They, they really wanted to Give these powers back to the states, and so the Madison who is a i think a great strategist a great political strategist he puts forward a bill of rights that doesn't include any of those those uh proposals that would Diminish the powers of the federal government, and the comments by people outside the government and in the government are basically, eh, you know, so let them go ahead and make this paper barrier. Let them go ahead and and make this statement. But Madison wanted to include the right of the federal government to reach down into the states and enforce the civil rights or the natural rights of the citizens of the state. At the time that he wrote the Bill of Rights, he was an ardent nationalist. And the idea that they could could impose that the federal government could impose its authority over the states was really very important to him. He wanted the senate to be chosen by proportional representation. He argued for that in the in the uh, constitutional convention so that the states wouldn't have a venue in the federal government so he wanted this passed, and the House of Representatives passed it along, that, that proposal, and the Senate wiped it out. Why did the Senate wipe it out? Because they were chosen by the state legislatures, and nobody wanted to go home and say, oh, and by the way, we just agreed that the federal government could intervene in our state in case we did something that infringed on people's rights. And the senator's no one wanted to commit that kind of political suicide. And once that was taken out, the paper barrier was just a paper barrier until, as you said, the 14th Amendment allowed the federal government to reach into the states and, and impose certain standards uh, and protections for certain groups of people.
0: Completely fascinating that the popularly elected House wanted to adopt this amendment and the state legislatures uh, who adopted the senators did not. David, if a right is natural rather than uh, uh, positive, in other words, if it comes from God or nature rather than government, then it can't be infringed by the states or the federal government. And indeed, many of the states had bills of rights that prohibited the infringement of those rights. So aside from pure politics, what was the argument in the Senate for allowing the states to infringe these basic natural rights?
2: Well, remember that many of the 10 or the 12 amendments that finally Madison, who was extremely verbose, had something like 39 of them, and a committee reduced it all and made some declarative sentences (laughs) instead of his very complicated uh, 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 sentences. A lot of them were about sort of structures, not natural rights or inalienable rights. It was about how, who the federal government could sue. It was about uh, uh, eminent domain. It was about uh, how a trial would be conducted. They, they were procedural. That's the word I want, procedural. They were not all uh, the amendments were not all about one individual rights. In fact, the only really important one was what became the First Amendment. And so it's not as if the whole debate about the Bill of Rights was about natural or in, in unalienable rights. Uh, a lot of them had nothing to do with that.
0: David, as Carroll says, many of the original constitutional protections, as well as some of the pr- proposed amendments, had to do with structure and not rights. There was one final proposed amendment that didn't make it through. It was Madison's Proposal 18. And again, I'm reading uh, listeners from constitutionalrights.constitutioncenter.org. You can find it in the homepage. It's so cool. And Madison's Proposal 18 says... The powers delegated by this Constitution are appropriated to the departments to which they are respectively distributed so that the legislative department shall never exercise the power vested in the executive or judicial, nor the executive exercise the power vested in the legislature or judicial, nor the judicial exercise the power vested in the legislative or executive departments. A wonderful, uh, I'll just say, uh, liberty-minded uh, senator came by the Constitution Center recently and said, boy, if that amendment had passed, imagine how much less mischief we would have had in delegating power to the federal government. David, tell us about Madison's, you know, desire originally to keep every branch to its own uh, area, and was he disappointed by the failure of that proposal to pass?
1: Well, it, it, it's difficult to say uh, precisely about his disappointments with this specific provision. I do think uh, that imagines a, a tightly cabined uh, fed, uh, branches of the federal government, um, which would not be anything like what we have today. You know, we have an executive branch that has courts. They have their own courts in some instances in immigration cases, in lots of different settings. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a legislative branch that sometimes, uh, is engaged, uh, get, tries to give itself executive, uh, review powers, uh, some of which have been struck down by the Supreme Court, like the legislative veto. Um, And I think it's hard to know if Congress uh, deleted that uh, provision because they found it baffling (laughs) or because they found it uh, obvious. Uh, They might well have just thought he was stating what anybody would no, looking at Article I and Article II and Article Three that they were separate. Um, and they may have just looked at it as confusing. Uh, it seems to me that it would have put a considerable straitjacket on the, on the development of the government. And it contemplated a small government. It's very difficult for us to really understand how small the government was at the time. In 1787, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, the government consisted of a few hundred soldiers, uh, some uh, some clerks, uh, some secretaries of different uh, subject areas who reported to Congress. Um, there was almost nothing to it, even after a couple of years of the Washington administration, you get certainly some postmasters and some customs officials. Uh, Madison and Jefferson think the government has expanded massively. But by today's standards, um, it was almost nobody. Uh, and this sort of provision would might have fit that t- sort of government. Today, we expect government to do so much more. Uh, that It really would be a straitjacket, and I think Madison's conception was an 18th century conception, which we're probably lucky didn't survive.
0: Uh, Carol, tell us about some of the amendments that were uh, proposed but didn't pass that didn't come from Madison. For example, uh, Jefferson supported the following constitutional amendment. Monopolies may be allowed to persons for their own production in literature and their own invention in the arts, but for no longer term, and for no other purpose. Um, And uh, Madison also resisted a constitutional amendment proposed by six states that would have provided that Congress do not grant monopolies or erect any company with exclusive advantages of commerce. So there is this anti-corporate series of amendments that are proposed, supported by Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists, that Madison does not support. Uh, Tell us about those and some of the other unratified and uh, uh, unproposed amendments.
2: Well, yes. Uh, Jefferson is... First, foremost, and forever, uh, an agrarian and a Virginian, and one of the one of the concerns was that what I guess we would Charles Beard called dynamic capital—that is, commerce and trade in the North—would get the upper hand. Uh, and so a lot of Jefferson's opposition w- was to anything that would make the trajectory of the American political economy uh, favor the growth of cities, the growth of uh, financial institutions, the growth of industry, the <laughs> it, it, those things that we would have associated in the in the 18th and early 19th century with the Northeast and the, and the middle states. So these are things that, that Southerners wanted to, to put a brake on. But the biggest ones, Madison's biggest concern was to make sure that no one touched the powers that were given to the federal government. Uh, as I said, there was such a, a desire to see the power to tax, which in the 18th century was called the power of the purse. I mean, people really understood in the 18th century that the 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 branch of the kind of government that controlled revenue was a government with great power and so uh patrick henry warned in the virginia ratifying convention you would have two sets of tax collectors coming to your door uh, twice a year uh, and and so Madison wanted to make sure that that power wasn't touched. He wanted to make sure that the power to create a kind of uniform economy and to regulate commerce wasn't touched. He wanted to have a uniform currency. And these were, these were economic questions that the anti-federalists and then the critics of the federal government in, the, in the Congress really wanted to see past. And Madison, as I said, was a great strategist, and he, he put forward 39 proposals, and he made sure that none of them had anything to do w- with the structure of the government except this one about the separation of powers. The se- and I think, if if I can interject a thought, what destroys the separation of powers among the legislative, judiciary, and executive are political parties. Political parties weave together the House and the Senate, and if, you, if your party controls the presidency and the president appoints the Supreme Court, so that as soon as you get organized political parties where your loyalty is to the party, Madison's Model his structure, his architecture, that the legislature will only legislate and the Senate uh, will – the House will only do certain things and the Senate another and the the presidency another, because his vision, the 18th century vision, was every single member of each of these branches of government would act based on their individual wisdom and their individual uh, conscience. And so you would never have uh, everybody in the House uh, voting the way their party told them and also the same way in the Senate. Uh, and this didn't last past the point where where the ink was dry on the Constitution. Uh, as soon as you get Republicans and Federalists or Jeffersonians, whatever you want to call that original uh, um, uh, government party, as soon as you get that, then you begin to get people being told whether you believe this is a good idea or not, you vote the loyalty to your party, and you can begin to see votes in the Congress following these party lines, which were largely on an axis of north-south and east-west. And so Madison's proposal, even if it had gone through in the Bill of Rights, would have been antiquated, uh, certainly by the 19th century, when you get permanent political parties.
0: Fascinating. uh, David, um, I want to ask first briefly about the two proposals that were not uh, ultimately uh, uh, ratified, and that is Amendment 1. And again, it's so neat, ladies and gentlemen, come to the Constitution Center, see the original Bill of Rights, and see that the original First Amendment was not the one dealing with freedom of speech, but says that there has to be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. That didn't pass. And the amendment that says that Congress can't raise its salary without an intervening election didn't pass until it was ratified in 1994. David, why didn't those two amendments pass?
1: Uh, I don't have a snappy answer for that. Um, it, <laughs> you don't need a snappy uh,
0: answer. A long one. Yeah,
1: I, I think it, it may well have uh, simply not seemed worthy compared to the other ones. Um, there were different states ratified different parts uh, of the 12 that were referred by Congress. And so you get a sort of different pastiche of ratifying states for all of them. Um, but one thought I did want to offer uh about the overall process and to use an 18th century conceit, uh, you know, Adam Smith talked about the unseen hand of the invisible hand of the market as it worked in our lives. I think in this process, certainly with the Bill of Rights, there is the invisible hand of Washington. Um, We tend to push him aside because he kept himself quite silent during much of this debate. Uh, Although his inaugural address had asked for only one thing from Congress, and that was a Bill of Rights. Uh, And he wrote a letter, which Madison used very uh, judiciously, uh, endorsing the idea. And we need to appreciate just what a massive political figure he was at the time. He had been elected unanimously. Uh, And if you wanted something to happen in early America, you just needed Washington to agree to it. And everybody pretty much said, okay. So when you look at things like restrictions on commerce of the sort Jefferson wanted, Washington would never want that. He believed in a robust commercial life. And other factors, it's hard for us to remind ourselves because he wasn't in the conversation, but... Washington's invisible hand, I think, was there for much of it.
0: Well, I could keep this conversation going and going, but it's time for closing arguments. Carol, first word uh, to you. Um, Why is the Bill of Rights important, and why should our listeners care about it?
2: Oh, well, because I think it does do. The Bill of Rights does do, not perfectly, and certainly today it seems to many of us it's endangered but i think it does do what madison hoped it would do and that is it has become what american stands for what what we believe in uh it embodies our sort of cultural uh, ideal and and in that sense it does cause people to 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 stop and pause and say is this what ought to happen in the United States of america uh, and And so in that sense, civically, in terms of of how we behave to one another, it, it is a guidepost. it is a, a, a signpost for for most of us, I think, uh, and in these very contentious times, I, I think people are beginning. To rally around it in ways that I think would warm the cockles of Madison's heart, though I've never actually known what the cockles were, but <laughs> I, think, I think that it would make him proud.
0: Beautiful. David Stewart, last word to you. Why is the Bill of Rights important on its 225th anniversary, and why should our listeners care about it? it
1: it's what we aspire to. Uh, it's what we wish we could be like. Um, and We often are, uh, and we sometimes are not. And we are, you know, there's the wonderful saying that our reach must exceed our grasp. You know, we are earthbound creatures. We are only able to achieve so much in our self-interested lives. But it does lay out for us our, our goals, our desire to be just and fair. To all criminal defendants, we've we've failed to talk about that today, but the fifth, sixth, uh, fifth and fourth, fifth and sixth amendments are terribly important for that, and you just have to be a criminal defendant to understand how important they are, and central to being an American, and it has become the definition in many ways, uh, and has come to dwarf the provisions of the Constitution in the popular mind. I think that would be. Madison's greatest surprise uh, and I think it would be a source of great satisfaction
0: for him. Thank you so much, David Stewart and Carol Birkin, for an illuminating, rich, and historically nuanced discussion of the Bill of Rights on its 125th anniversary. I will resist the urge to sing happy birthday to the Bill of Rights, but I know we all (laughs) wish it a very, very happy birthday. And we're so grateful to both of you for having taught us about the Bill of Rights on this very important anniversary. David, Carol, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show is engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, as the end of the year approaches, remember that despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. If you've loved this Pat podcast, ladies and gentlemen, please consent, consider an end-of-year donation to the Constitution Center. Even a token would be wonderful, and it would sign you up as a member of the National Constitution Center family, as well as supporting this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.